You're listening to the Music Book Podcast with your host, Mark Masters. Hey, thanks for checking out the Music Book Podcast. I'm Mark Masters. I write about music for places like Pitchfork, The Wire, and Bandcamp. On this podcast, I talk to music book authors about how they get from their first idea to a finished book and all the decisions they make along the way. So for this episode, I was super excited to get to talk to Thurston Moore. He's the author of Sonic Life, a memoir, released today, October 24th, by Doubleday. It's a fascinating story of Moore's journey through music as a creator and a fan, from his early days discovering records with his older brother to the end of his longtime band, Sonic Youth. Though it is a true memoir, offering a first-person perspective on his experiences, it's also in many ways a history of the music that surrounded and inspired him, with so many great stories about some of the amazingly creative people he's met along the way. By the way, at the end of this episode, I asked Thurston about another book, but I don't say the full title, so for anyone curious, that book is Nick Soulsby's Thurston Moore, We Sing a New Language, an oral history of the staggering amount of collaborations and side projects Thurston has done. I highly recommend it. Definitely check that book out. Quick reminder, I have a new book out myself. It's called High Bias, The Distorted History of the Cassette Tape, released earlier this month on UNC Press, and you can get a signed copy as well as a copy of the companion cassette tape at highbiasbook.bandcamp.com. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, the Music Book Podcast, please email me at musicbookpodcast at gmail.com. So here's my conversation with Thurston Moore, which I really hope you enjoy. Well, thanks. I've, I've really been really enjoyed the book a lot. I, I thought there was so much interesting stuff in there, and it was kind. Of, it struck me as kind of almost like a life t- lifelong tour diary in a way. It was like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I really wish I kept a tour diary. And it's funny there um, when you read sort of classic tour diaries, and there's not that many that are in print. Uh, they're kind of great. I mean, Ian Hunter did the most famous one, right? That's how you want to be a rock and roll star, or whatever it was called, or something rock and roll star, like in the '70s. Because right. he actually kept a tour diary. And our friend from uh, Luna, uh, he kept a tour diary, did Black Tickets, that book. And that was actually really good. But he, 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 I remember him saying or writing that the reason he kept a tour diary is because when, he, when Luna started, well, not Luna, it would have been um, Galaxy 500, started, his father told him, keep a diary. And so he kept a diary and he went out on the road and he kept a diary and he always had it. And then all these years later, he kind of used it as, as the text for his, his book. It kind of read really interestingly. And I can only think that a diary would have been a completely different exposition of, of memory, you know, because right. um, memory becomes really vague and really selective. Mm-hmm. When you get older, when you pass like the 20, 30, 40 year mark, you know, with, with these things, right. um, I can only think that a diary would be com- completely uh, defined by its own kind of reality because it certainly um, it certainly was interesting trying to sort of name places and times and running them by other people who kind of disagreed and then you'd have to have receipts with documents and ephemera and uh, here's the flyer for that gig in Detroit that we did with Laughing Hyenas and, uh-huh. and Mud Honey or and Die Kreutzen or whatever and it sort of proves the point and I mean, I, did, I kept a diary for forced exposure fanzine in the late 80s. As, right, you know, I remember that one. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was sort of um, Byron Coley and Jimmy Johnson's idea, like, keep a diary and we'll print it. And so we did. And so mm -hmm. it's like even that, it's interesting because it's sort of memory doesn't really sort of um, connect with the reality of that diary. And actually, when I was asking Lee about certain things in the very early 80s, he said he had kept a, a diary for the first couple of years. And so mm -hmm. he pulled it out. I didn't want to sort of catch his personal diary, although I was just like, can you just send me a Xerox of your diary so I can use it in my book? <laughs> right. I think Lee's book will be very interesting in regards yeah. to that. But he was able to pinpoint like the day we flew on People Airlines over to London and like where we landed and all this kind of stuff. And then oh, wow. I was like, oh, it was Gatwick Airport. It wasn't Heathrow Airport. That makes a lot of sense, you know, because mm -hmm. of, of the time that we spent with Paul Smith from Blasphemous Records and traveling from that airport into London and little things like this. So, yeah. 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 That's interesting. When you first sort of, I mean, I, I get the idea, get the idea that the process was kind of, you had this idea for it and then you went around, you found an agent and they had you write a, write a chapter, uh, sort of Nirvana yeah. focused chapter. And then, and then once you kind of got knew that you were then writing this whole thing, did you have a, like an initial approach you had in mind? Did you think, I want, I want it to be this way or that way, or was it a matter of just, I'm going to sit down and start writing and then I'll see what happens. I really wanted, I, I really wanted to write, I, you know, it, it's like writing has always been completely essential to me as a creative impulse. And I always gave equal value to writing that I gave to uh, music composition or even like improvised music or even like lyric writing. I mean, to me, it was all sort of, it, it was like you, could hardly do both. Like when you're on tour, you can't do anything but be on tour, you know? Right. And so you think like, oh, we'll write some songs over on tour. It's like, you don't write songs on tour, you know, unless you're really catered to and you, and you have like a, such a high profile that you can go into your sound check and have a special room that has gear in it and everybody's like, kind of nothing else to do. We never really had that. Bands do have that, by the way, but we never really had that. And when you're, when you're on tour, you don't do anything except for try to crawl out of your, your, your uh, bed into going to get something to eat, some sustenance, and then the sound check. And mm -hmm. then another kind of waiting period of where there's too many people involved. So you're kind of, um, you're always uh, preoccupied with little micro community that you have. Right. And then you play the gig and then you're exhausted. If you're not loading out, you're still exhausted. It doesn't really matter. And you try to find a place to sleep. And if you have a place to sleep, getting there is just like, almost impossible because nobody's ready to leave at the same time. I mean, it's just like you do not do anything else but live the life of being on tour. So right. for me, I always thought like I would, I would love to write more. And all the writing and publishing I've done through the years has been basically more so succinct and economical writing, such as poetry and really studying poetry. And I think a lot of the fascination with poetry was just that there was this, this kind of economy in the literature was in some ways it was sort of the essence of writing and that, that, that kind of um, that kind of allowed for some more expedient kind of activity with writing but I always wanted to write like a, a long piece whether it was fiction whether it was nonfiction, whatever like write a book I'm a great lover of books I'm a huge book library behind me, as you can see. I mean, and that's nothing. I mean, that's just like a raindrop in, in like the, the amount of books I, I own. I'm sure. I'm sure. And so I, you know, I, to me to actually publish like a, a full length book was something I always really desired and dreamed to do. And so I just wanted to write. And I 
didn't know exactly, as you asked, I didn't really know exactly how I was going to approach writing a quote-unquote memoir. I wasn't even sure if I wanted to write a quote-unquote memoir, but I did want to write about music. And so I had been asked if I would write a memoir, if I was ever going to write a memoir. Of course, there was a lot of reaction to when Kim wrote a memoir 15 years ago, like, well, where's yours now? You know, it's your turn. These kind of things. And so I kind of, um, it was always in my mind, but I, 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 I never really wanted to write so much about myself or my own sort of personal feelings about anything in the, you know, the, the grand scheme of life. I kind of wanted to write about what the inspirations and, and what the signifiers were that sort of led me to be interested and of all things, this kind of subversive, marginalized music that existed in, in culture, this kind of, you know, being interested in this counter counter culture uh, of underground music, which started really early on. And, you know, as like a, just like a middle class kid from rural Connecticut, like, why would you be attracted to these images of like Iggy Pop standing on the hands of the audience and spray painted silver and pointing to the back of the room or pictures of uh, Patti Smith as an androgynous, you know, um, kind of wonder standing on the subway platform as photographed by Gerard Malongo, you know, coming out of the Andy Warhol factory and really being interested in all of this, this world that was somewhat subterranean and wasn't really talked about in, in the mainstream. Like what leads certain people to be interested in that uh, uh, more so than anything else? I don't think I ever answer the question. I don't get really forensic with it or analyze it to any degree because in some ways I don't, I just sort of take it, I, I, I just sort of trust the impulse, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As, you know some yeah. of us are just born that way. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, so, that makes total sense. I think, I mean, I, I feel like the, the book in a lot of ways is a, is a history of the music you've been around, you know, and, and sort of like a lot of people, myself, a lot of people who are fans of your your projects and stuff i think a lot of us sort of define our lives by the music and, and books and and the things that we've really gotten into yeah and i think i think that kind of explain it does sort of explain itself in a way like the fact that you're still that's still what you're interested in is i think there's i think there's an identity i think there's this identity with the sense of of there's a there's a certain kind of romantic ideal of of otherness that I found mm-hmm. to be really attractive. And I c- kind of wanted that to become apparent in the writing of the mm-hmm. book and sort of like why some of this ephemera was so significant, such as going out and hunting down Seventh Heaven, which is Patti Smith's first, one of her first poetry books, but actually getting in a car and driving into New York City an hour and a half away and going to Gotham Bookmart and seeking this book out because you knew you heard it was there. And, uh, you know, I don't even write this in the book, but when I first go to Gotham Bookmart, when I walk in there, Patty Smith walks in, you know, and she's just kind of hanging out in the bookstore. And I'm just like, oh, you know, and, and I get her to sign the book and, and I get back in the Volkswagen Beetle. I was like, she's in there. And my friend Harold, who was like traveling with me, jumped out and went in and got his book signed. And, but it was, you know, we were the only ones. It wasn't like there was a bunch of people crowding around Patti Smith. She was still somewhat, you know, she was, she was really sort of appealing to a very specific demographic of, of people like us. You know, right. that, would all, that would all change as this time would, would go forward. I just found it to be 
interesting that there was this community that was really sort of a micro community of 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 avant-garde disciplines in music and art and writing you know that appealed to a small circle of people in, in different parts of the world that you could almost from 70 mid 70s onwards you could you could you could almost physically see it expand mm-hmm. you know you know, I mean, the first time you hear, I mentioned, you know, in the book about like Johnny Carson actually mentioning the name Sex Pistols on his program, you know, late at <laughs> night because the sex, because the Sex Pistols are touring America in, you know, in the way McLaren thought was a great idea of like playing in, uh, you know, the, the secondary, if not tertiary markets, you know, and uh, Johnny Carson each night was keeping up with the Sex Pistols, like, and he was like, make fun of Johnny Rotten and Sid Vicious, you know, their names were so outrageous that he thought that was funny and the audience would snicker along. But it was just like the fact that, you know, it had entered into the consciousness of the mainstream as, as comedy. It was just like, mm-hmm. it was kind of astounding at the time, you know? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Totally. I understand that uh, you, you initially had a, a pretty long draft that of course probably was too long to be published as is and so i'm curious how the how the process from from there to the book that you have now uh went yeah. was there were there um things that were sort of easy to, to say well we could i could talk about that in another book or was was it a pretty tough process to get to where you got to or? it was three times as long as that w- oh wow uh-huh. and the book is a bit of a doorstop now i um <laughs> I knew that I would have to edit. I knew the scissors would have to come out. And mm-hmm. I was looking forward to it. I was looking forward to anything that had to do with the actual uh, uh, process of writing. And I kind of sequestered myself in an undisclosed location for most of it, mostly during mm-hmm. the pandemic year of 21 into 22. And mm-hmm. it just really it enjoyed immensely waking up at 5 a.m. And, and and opening up the laptop and working until dark, and I just I really there was such I found such joy in writing and, and putting together the manuscript uh, and, and moving forward. And then when the libraries first started opening, um, being able to sort of contact libraries and sort of see if I could find uh, the references I needed, such as uh, microfilm of the Village Voice. Um, you know, which was like the most essential newspaper for, you know, anybody like working in the industry of like arts from 1958 onwards, you know, but it's mostly for me, like in the late 70s into the 80s into the early 90s. Mm-hmm. And nobody had it. I mean, the New York Public Library was, was like, we know it's criminal, but we don't have digital on this. And we have a few spurious copies of it. And I was like, well, you know, where can I find it? Well, there's different there's different book collectors I would reach out to. And they're like, oh, we know somebody who has like a full run of, of these years. And it, finding s- separate copies of The Village Voice on eBay, they were like, you know, 40, 50 bucks a pop. So that wasn't going to work, you know, because it came out every week, for God's sakes. And, yeah. uh, and I just thought, like, who who has all The Village Voices? Like, well, I mean, no one. And I finally kind of went into the, Library of Congress site, which is a an, an immense warren of, of of you know of of data in, in the library world, and I I was able to sort of find one library that had supposedly a microfilm of the entire run. It's only one library, and it happened to be in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and where I was writing at the time was in 
South Miami, Florida, where I kind of lived as a child. And so I have family down there. I have some friends down there. And my, my wife, Eva, and I were renting a house down there during that year and, and just sort of living there. And well, we were living there. And, I, and so that's where I was getting most of the writing done. Finding out that the one library in the USA that had this microfilm happened to be 30 minutes away by car was un- unreal because I was willing to wow. jump a plane and go to Michigan or anywhere who somebody would have right. it and spend some time mm-hmm. going through the, the archives. So I called them up and it was just some elderly a woman answered the phone and, and I said, are you open? And she's like, yeah, we just opened. And I said, uh, do you have... <laughs> Do you have the Village Voice on microphone? She goes, what is the Village Voice? I said, well, was it, you know, was it a newspaper? She goes, oh, I have, you know, let me connect you with the periodicals department. And so about 15 minutes later, I get a, another person on the phone. Again, another elderly like person saying, uh, you, know, um, you know, there's nobody up at the periodicals department, but I'll go up and look for it for you. So, you know, it was about 45 minutes later on the phone that I get a response saying like, Yes, we have it. And I said, "Are you are you sure?" You know, because I have to rent a car and like drive out there because I don't have a I don't have a car. So I rent a car and I drive to Fort Lauderdale. I find the library there, which is a huge monolithic building, and mm-hmm. I go in there. And the first, you know, the police come to me and they make sure that you have mask on you and like you know don't touch anything. And and they lead me up to the periodicals department, and everything is behind plastic dividers. You know, and I and they asked me like, well, can you write down on a piece of paper what you're looking for? And I said, well, I already called in, but this is it. And I sat around for a while, and finally, again, another elderly <laughs> individual starts pull, pushing out this this library cart. You know, just clack, 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 and it was like just toppling with like microfilm boxes. <laughs> and there it was. And he said, like, you have, do you know how to use the machine? I was like, uh, yeah, I guess so. But it was like an old analog crank machine that you put the, right. the tapes on and the microfilm mm-hmm. is all, you know, it's this kind of black and white, like, um, microfilm that kind of blows up on the screen. It was great that you could actually, it was, it was, you were able to sort of put a thumb drive in and copy pages. Oh, so nice. that's, so I just started doing that. But going through these, this microfilm was, it was so replete with historical information, you know, like it, starting from like Thelonious Monk playing like in the village, you know, and, and, and to like Albert Eiler, and you could, you could sort of see like how the music changes and expands on the club circuit downtown, or it becomes more prominent because it's actually not so prominent. It's just, it's, it's pretty spurious early on. And when it gets in the 70s, you can actually find like the very first time Patti Smith's name is mentioned in a theater piece that she does, and she gets some, she gets this very tiny accolade in, in, in this write-up. Uh, you find a lot of uh, information on the page that says "free" <laughs> because there's a whole page, and that page would change to the '70s where it was like two dollars and fifty cents and under. But at first, it was free. Oh wow! And I was, I really need to establish with the very first Sonic Youth gig was and 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 i had the date but there was some i couldn't tell by the flyer if it was at club 57 which says club 57 on the flyer or if it was at the kitchen because i remember it being at the kitchen but the flyer tells me different (laughs) but there was this thing where sometimes it would be like the kitchen presents at club 57 and i couldn't find it and 
so while I was taking a break, and the only thing I could eat there was bananas because you can't eat. You're not allowed to eat in the library. But you could, I was sneaking, I could sneak in a banana, uh, a bunch of bananas. And when nobody was looking, I'd reach down and I'd peel it off and I'd jam it in my mouth and like, you know, underneath, <laughs> underneath the mask. Sometimes I would get caught. He's like, you can't eat in here. And I was like, oh, no, no, I'm not. It's just a, it's just something in my, you know. <laughs> so I subsisted off like, I had a high niacin diet, you know, and, uh, you know, for about a week and a half. I went there every day, and uh -huh. I still, you know, I still want to go back because there's so, there, you know, articles by Lester Bangs, and, yeah. you know, it was just like all this writing in the, in the Village yeah. Voice, the whole, especially the about- The Tom Johnson columns, like better all in there. The Tom Johnson columns, just like all the writing about uh, performance and poetry mm -hmm. that I would not have read at the time because I was, my interest was in- more singular things like the bands that I was associated with, but you know, right. through through the decades, my interest expanded into certainly what was going on at the Poetry Project in New York. Certainly, was going on more at the experimental places. Certainly, was going on at the the avant garde jazz clubs. You know, and um, mm -hmm. my interest in that was so compounded that when I started seeing like all the all the writing and the development of it in the Village Voice, it was just, it was just like, it was too much. I was like, I didn't have enough time. I mean, I'd still be there, you know. Right. <laughs> I would have, I was like, I'm going to forget the book. I'm just going to stay here, like, like collect this archive, you know. But uh, I didn't want the book, I wanted the book to be a balance between this kind of anal retentive kind of data, you know, which is what I, I which I really like. I mean, these books that kind of do a day-to-day -day account of like David Bowie's life or the Sex Pistols' existence, which they do exist. These books, they're amazing. Yeah. I love them. You know, they're really <laughs> super forensic. They're like, it's uh -huh. like this, this, this is where Steve Jones and Sex Pistols went to see a gig on this particular day, as sure. opposed to like John Lydon. He was over here doing this gig, but it was just <laughs> like I I, I want to know this, and uh, so I kind of sort of had the idea of like writing a book that sort of was a balance between having like the hard data with the with this, just the essaying of how significant the experiences were. Mm -hmm. And the experiences in some way were kind of minor. I mean, it's just like the idea of Alan Vega coming up to you on the street and saying like, this is what you should do. It's just like, I mean, you know, that's compared to like Rod Stewart going to see um, the Rolling Stones, you know, when they first started, it, it, it doesn't really compare, I, I suppose. But to me, it was all about, it was all about sort of how you, relay this kind of experience yeah. guitar player of the slits um, uh, viv albertine her first book which was her account of being in the slits and discovering punk rock or actually being one of the first architects of punk rock coming out of london i noticed in her book one thing that really appealed to me in her book is like there were certain incidents that stuck with her to such a degree that when she relayed them in her book they really were he, he, really charged and they really made a lot of sense in a really personal and emotional way uh, without getting overly um, overwhelmed. And one of them was like when her husband was like waving a letter that had come to their house from the actor Vincent Gallo and she saw him waving the letter and knew that there was something in this energy in this letter that was going on that she's that this actor was kind of writing to her and trying to find her because she had gone kind of quiet on the scene right. for years and one thing that happens while this incident is taking place is she's coming up a trail 
into their backyard. Her husband's on the porch waving this letter, and a palm frond from a tree cuts into her eyelid and like it, it disturbs her eye, like slices her eye a little bit. It's like, and she kind of like she writes about that, like this palm frond, like like sticking her in the eyeball with her husband waving this letter. And I just thought like that's just there's something about that that is as telling and mm-hmm. as cool as anything imaginable. Like even like somebody writing about sky skydiving with Elton John or something like that. I'd rather read about the palm frond cutting the cutting, <laughs> cutting your eyeball, uh-huh. knowing that there's some weird energy coming from this letter. You know, that uh-huh. to me was like something was very there was something very poetic about it. Yeah. Uh, and so I kind of kept that in mind when I was writing. Like like it's really about these um these instances of, of going to a club and seeing suicide or the cramps or whatever early on, like what those first forays were and how to how to write about it as if you're still there, but without the voice of being a 20-year-old. Because my voice as a 20-year-old would have been like a very sort of snarky 20-year-old thinks he knows everything kind of dude, <laughs> as opposed to a 65-year-old who has a little bit of sort of retrospective sophistication. <laughs> I would hope. I don't know. but uh, I think you do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really like how you, you started the book with your – your childhood experience with your brother you sort of jump right into like this is a pretty formative thing but you you present it as a scene rather than like indicating hey this this is formative it's just sort of that's what we're to take from it kind of i'm curious yeah. if you had had, had any thoughts of, of starting it was that always kind of the way you wanted to start or had you because i think some other books which i don't think would have been successful way might have started in a more general like you know i have this big picture on things and now i'm going to focus in instead but you sort of start right in the moment was that was that a I think it took it, it took a few it took a while for me to realize like that was where I wanted to start. You know, when mm-hmm. I first sat down and looked at the empty screen, I was like, okay, I'm going to write this book now. Mm-hmm. My my first inclination was to be completely meta and sort of have a really kind of like experimental like rock memoir mm-hmm. where it was all over the place, <laughs> and it was just like kind of like really challenging the reader. And then I realized that I particularly didn't feel like I wanted to challenge myself as a writer to do that, even though I kind of like that kind of writing. I don't really, I don't really adore it. And so I'm very interested in experimental literature and, and, and writers who devote their, their vocation to it, whether it be William S. Burroughs or Kathy Acker. But I, in some ways, I also have this realization that I don't, really enjoy reading their work. I am more, I, I more enjoy reading about them as people and like who they are as, as very interesting individuals as, as they are. Their work doesn't always um, float my boat, you know, in a way. And in, in some ways I feel like I needed to sort of understand that I had an appreciation for more conservative takes in any discipline, be it music or uh, or, or literature or art. And, you know, so as much as I love being in a basement watching Mertzbell just sort of destroy people's, you know, brains, it, I also kind of like, it's, it has to me equal value, like, you know, being in a, uh, being at a club listening to like, like a, the pure pop of, of um, a blondie or something, you know, so it's like, 
I kind of wanted to write about that as well. And, and that most people I know in our, in, in our, our community, we have this kind of shared aesthetic that it's, it's far more, it's, it's far more liberal and far more open than you would suspect, you know, you know, because I mean, even like growing up, it's like being into punk rock. It's like, well, punk rock's not music. I say something in the book where the, the high school kids are yelling at me that punk rock's not music. And I say, go, hey, ho, let's go. We never said it was, you know, this idea of like, you know, uh, but, but it is, you know, and it's, and it is, in some ways I kind of wanted to really write about how great this culture and subculture is and how great mm -hmm. these songs are and how great this music is. And to talk about, a band like the Sex Pistols, like the each subsequent single was just better than the last because they were really fantastic rock and roll songs. I mean, the one album they do is like one of the cornerstone, essential rock and roll documents of the of the twentieth century. It's just like I, I I and I find there's it's not really almost talked about enough because punk rock is always overshadowed by its own sort of. Uh, a hijink uh, kind of attitude, where it's like mm -hmm. the work is insanely proficient, pro prolific with like Im impeccable pieces of music. It also is the fact that it actually becomes, or it yeah, it actually becomes a forum for this this idea of of complete inclusion. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's uh, is. It's also not discussed enough. I mean, it's it was it, in some ways it's a really sort of reckless space, but it's actually kind of one of the the most dignified and safest spaces I find for creative impulse, and I always have. And so, yeah, punk is funny, but punk is also very serious, and it's still kind of like the the great alternative for I think for anybody coming of age who feels uneasy with the machinations of the mainstream, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I, I think, you know, going back to what you're saying about maybe writing a more experimental thing, but then realizing you wanted to sort of keep it a little bit more traditional, I think you're sort of uniquely positioned, because you have written about, you've written other books about music, you've written other articles about music. I think a lot of times memoirs from musicians can end up being so kind of myopic or, or a little too self-centered in a way, because all they really had was their own experience. And, yeah. the, you know, but you, you know how to, how to, get into a band you know how to research things about a band and so i think in a way i think that was the right thing for you to do is to treat it that way in a lot of ways because you have that ability which a lot of musicians don't i had a little issue with it even being identified as a memoir i mean because i kind of knew that okay. there's a i mean there's a certain expectation with a memoir that you're kind of divulging you know uh, <laughs> you, you, your 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 kind of personal peccadilloes but I had no interest. I had no interest in that. I didn't really want to talk about myself at all, you know. But I kind of wanted. I, I, you know, I always, I just wanted to talk about like, uh, this is what happened where I was, <laughs> and this is what, and this is, how, and this is how it inspired me and informed me. And it's just like, and I kind of didn't want to get into accolades. I kind of, I certainly didn't want to get into uh, heavy relationship kind of, uh, you know, writing. You know, so uh, obviously. You know, I get asked like, "Why don't you write about your your marriage and your divorce from Kim more explicitly?" I was like, "Because I didn't want to." It's not. It's, it's, it's kind of like I didn't. I, I didn't. I thought about it, but I was like, "Why?" Well, I, I certainly don't 
and would not enjoy writing about that. And I don't think it's anybody's business anyway, except for my family's. So sure. it's just like, I don't want to. I don't, it's just like, it's a drag. <laughs> I think to even dignify it in any which way, I would have to have something stand alone as opposed to right. trying to shoehorn it in, into a book that is dealing with so many other aspects. Right. And so it, it would just become sort of pithy. And mm-hmm. so it's not something that I think necessitates being any pithy or whatnot. So mm-hmm. there's that, you know, and so, mm-hmm. and I also knew that critically that would be the, that would have to be a focal point because there's a great power to salient interest when it comes to like memoirs. And so, right. I mean, I love writing, I love reading about people's personal lives and like <laughs> right. you know, the, the damages and like, you know, yo, you're, you know, you're going to talk about being a heroin addict for 30 years. Like, yeah, spill it. I'll hear it. You know, like, just, you know, but it's like, you know, I did, I, did, I, I felt like um, there's some things I want to share and some things I don't want to share. And what I do want to share is just sort of like, I want to share, I want to share the epiphanies, the joys. I call the first chapter Epiphany. And it just so happens that the first school I go to as a little Catholic boy is called the Epiphany School, you know, of all places, you know. Right. So I just like, well, that's, it's just going to be all about these epiphanies. Mm-hmm. I think Glenn yeah. Matlock from the Pistols just published a book this, this week. It's called oh. Triggers. It's called Triggers. And it's all about mm-hmm. these records and songs that mm-hmm. triggered his own sort of mm-hmm. like fascination with, with being a... Uh, a musician. So I like that. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I did want to talk about the emotional life of being in a band and I kind of, kind of do. I talk, I certainly talk about oh, the yeah. emotional, the emotional environment of being in a room when a band like say mission of Burma are on stage and you're seeing that for the first time in like the early eighties. And like, it's just like, there's a transcension that's going on, a transcendence mm-hmm. that's going on in the room. And it's the only way to write about it is to, actually have been there, you know, during right. that, during that and experiencing it. Yeah. And so writing about what that feeling is, writing about Nirvana on stage at Maxwell, seeing them for the first time and without realizing that's what you're walking into. And then it's like, it happens. Mm-hmm. And so wanting to write it from that perspective of just like, what's going on here that is almost beyond words, you know, so right. and trying to, and so that's where, that's where the, interest in writing as far as prose as far as poetry comes in yeah, you know and i kind of like for me is a there's a there's an artfulness in in composition that i am really enamored by that it's something i find even writing a book like this the the writing becomes more um the writing becomes better as you as you move forward and like so i think like Three months into the writing process, I felt like I was writing better than I had been writing three months prior. And so I would go back and I would refine. And that was that would happen every few months where I would go back and I would read it like, God, that's clunky. And then I would refine it into what I had been writing. I saw Colson Whitehead do a, 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 a discussion recently for his new book here in London. And he sort of said something that really affected affected me where he said like basically i kind of listened to my own i listened to my own desires as far as what i want to write i think every my publishers and my editors would love me to write underground railroad over and over again like a book with that kind of gravitas which is you know it's, it's a remarkable piece of literature 
And what he decides to do is write a, he, write, he decides to write a, a, a trilogy about um, cops and robbers and heists and, ga- and gangsters in Harlem, like from the 50s into the 70s, and the next one is, in, I guess, in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And this new book is, sort of takes place in like the early and mid 70s, and it's fantastic. It's all like in Harlem. And um, the characters are great, and his, his, his third person voice addressing these characters it's just so amazing to read it's just like it's really fun and cool and smart and um he said something is like when i write these books it's just it's because i realize they're going to be at their best because they're the books i want to write and you know um i just hope people respond to them each book is a response to the previous book in the sense that I just want to be a better writer each book. Now, here's a writer who's already sort of been kind of officiated as one of them, you know, North America's great contemporary fiction writers. And he's still kind of looking to better his his craft. That to me was great. I was just like, I loved hearing that. And I find that it, I find that it, I, I, I laid back from reading fiction for many, many years, and I kind of got a little snarky with the, with, with the idea of fiction being primary in, in literature. And I was, actually was very interested in, in, in the memoir. I think the memoir actually took on a whole new uh, level of acceptance in the last 10, 15 years. But mm-hmm. the, um, I think it started with like, you know, people like uh, Mary, uh, who wrote Liar, Mary Carr, like who wrote like the Liars Club and thing? That was like a really important point in the in the memoirs as 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 it's kind of literature that had the same that was considered with the same value as 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 fiction because I don't think it really existed so much previous, at least not across the board. But I you know I I'm sort of speaking out of my hat with this kind of stuff. But <laughs> I um yeah so I mean reading somebody like Colson Whitehead or even like reading like these. These books by Jonathan Franzen, who's like kind of the great North American writer. Like Franzen's new book, Crossroads, just kind of blows my mind a bit. That consistency of flow in the language. Because mm-hmm. it's a large book. But I, I look at his book as like being this impenetrably, very, all his books are very ma- kind of massive. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like, I'm about like uh, about eight tenths of the way through his book, Crossroads. We're almost done with it. I was just like, God, this is such a. Uh, uh, a lengthy, challenging read, but it's really rewarding at the same time. And then I kind of put it next to my book, and it's the same. <laughs> it's the same page count. I was like, "Oh my god, I can't believe I delivered a book that people have to read this much." You know. So. <laughs> well, that's that's interesting what you say about about feeling like you were writing better as you went along, and then you went back and revised. I I kind of wonder if either in a subconscious or a conscious way, the book was sort of presenting itself to you as the more you did it, the more you realized this is what this book is. And so it was forming itself. Yeah. Yeah. It was defining itself. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Definitely. And also it, it, all of last year was working with my editor at Doubleday, um, Yaniv Sora. And the whole year was spent scissoring the book. I mean, it was a whole year was spent editing and I was looking forward to it. I knew that, I knew that editing was a process that I had to, engage in with some trepidation because um, it's not like I thought every word I wrote was was a jewel but I did know that there was a lot of episodes in the book that I wish I could have uh, kept in there I mean there's an avant-garde music festival at White Columns Gallery in 1981 that I curate called Noise Fest 
Right. I must have I must have written like a hundred pages about like Noise Fest and like right. every single band, every single artist that was in Noise Fest and and giving every all of their histories about the different regions these bands came from, like from North Carolina, from Minneapolis, from you know coming into New York and playing this festival and like what that meant, especially in retrospect, what that meant, and and the different characters involved and and what a lot of these musicians and bands developed into later on in their years um i just really went for it and that just like that just is gone i mean it's just like it, wow. it, you know that was like a huge a, a huge uh, excise from the book and there was a there's a few individuals that were very important to me um in a very familial and friendly way uh like the drummer epic soundtracks who was oh, yeah. the swell, swell maps drummer and these immortal souls and and um, I was very close to him and you know he died really young uh, in the late eighties early nineties but it's it just like there was situations like that that it didn't really keep you in the stream of the book in a way in fact in some ways it was like you're just there's just too much information you know, there's too much there's too many people involved and so. You know, it was sort of this like, God, I love you, Epic, but I gotta take you out of this book. I'll write something else some other time. And, you know, <laughs> so it's kind of heartbreaking. Like, there's a, a few things like that. You know, I sort of, the book sort of kind of speeds to a conclusion after it gets into the 90s where things become sort of um, re repetitive as far as, you know, being in a band, you know, recording and touring, recording and touring, recording. But within all of that, there's hundreds of more stories and, and situations that I felt like I could talk about. But I think for me, the most interesting thing was, was really focusing on the early development, because I think with anybody, whatever you decide or whatever you choose or however providence leads you into the vocation that you're involved with, so much of its pertinence has to do with what you discover at, at a young age. So those first records, those first gigs, those first words that you read, every, they stay with you forever. They really define a lot of what your interests are going through the years. And I kind of really wanted to maintain that in a way. You know, so the, like it's, in some ways, somebody said like the word Sonic Youth doesn't really appear until like over halfway through the book. You know, like, right. I was like, oh, well, yeah, but it gets there. I mean, it's just like, but it, a lot of it was like, how did we get there? And there's some memoirs by musicians that are are way more guiltier than mine, where they actually stop before the band begins. You know, <laughs> right, right, totally. <laughs> Which is okay too. I, I remember Bobby Gillespie's book from Primal Scream was like right, right, the great book. He writes, he goes, he stops at 1990, and so Primal Scream actually become like this really huge, celebrated kind of uh, wild, out of control sort of like punk rock kind of dance band on you know mm -hmm. and you know they become uh they're on the cover of the enemy every week all through the okay. 90s but he stops in 90 and i was like well that's okay because he maybe he just doesn't you know there's too much there to write about and so right. he wrote about all this kind of formative uh escapade that that allowed him to get there in some ways it was fortuitous that sonic youth sort of had a bit of a parameter of of where it ends with right. the last album even though we right. didn't know that was the end or we didn't consider it the end until it was right. the end 
but there was something it was something like the fact that it begins with epiphany as the name of the school that i first kind of go to and ends with like the eternal as a title of myself um you know it worked out yeah yeah, it worked out. yeah, yeah. you planned that didn't you um, right. yeah. that's cool did you, did you at some point think about going beyond the end of sonic youth in the book or was it pretty yeah. present itself as an end pretty quickly or yeah i just i i did it i did uh you know but i also thought it was like it was important to sort of pull the plug i mean it's important to take like the horn out of the mouth kind of thing and so <laughs> right. i mean it's like you know that john coltrane quote to miles davis is like i don't know how to stop soloing and miles is like take the horn out of your mouth Right. So it's sort of that kind of, you know, there was that kind of thinking, like, take, take the horn out of the mouth uh-huh. and put it down. No, it was just like, um, you know, uh, my wife, Eva, actually sort of came up with the idea. And she said, wasn't the last record called The Eternal? Why don't you just have that be the words on the page? It's like, a, that would be a really beautiful way to end. I was like, wow, I'm so glad you thought of that. I'm, you know. That's great. So I, I, I give her credence for that. Even she, she, get, she gets upset. Like, don't tell people I gave you that idea. Um, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was a. It was a, as they say in England, a proper way of ending. Uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it really works really well. I'll probably. I mean, I have so much material that I could do like another book that are sort of standalone chapters mm-hmm. that are that are specific essaying on like say the noise fest or say this like period of recordings that came out in like from like eighty to eighty three or something. Because I actually I created huge. Like I created a huge list, long list of every single independent record that was released on on, on every year from like wow. from seventy, from like seventy four, seventy five till I got to about eighty five, eighty six. And then I was wow. just like, I don't have enough time for this. I was like spending a lot of time, you know, um, uh, when I should have been really writing, you know. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I, I was just like over here, like compiling these lists. It would take hours and hours and hours and hours. I spent a whole day doing it. And um, <laughs> so I have, you know, because it, but it was very instructive. It was really interesting to sort of see like mm. this kind of vocabulary of music that we were involved with uh, morphing and changing and progressing. It was like, it was kind of great. And so yeah. I just thought, like, well, that, I'm going to do that book in a way. And so yeah. at first there was tons of, there was tons of writing about records in, in, in the book because records were really important to me. You know, they were, they were missives. They were exchanges between artists. In fact, when I got into like avant-garde and free improvisation jazz music and realizing that those records were even more arcane and obscure than in any punk rock records, I mean, the free improvisation records that were being made on these small artist labels like Derek Bailey or Evan Parker or even John Zorn, we're doing from the, the uh, mid seventies onwards. I mean, nobody who was buying those records. It was just like this kind of plink, plonk, clink, clank kind of like uh, sounds that were. I never, I never saw those records in record stores like growing up. And I went to every record store imaginable, and I was always peeling through every every bin in the record store. I'd be there for hours, but I never remember recognizing that coterie of of releases by these really small kind of uh, artist-run labels of free improvised music but they did exist and so when i did find out about that culture and i got really immersed in it because it i it, it was just fascinating from a, a musical standpoint particularly that it was musicians 
exchanging information with other musicians around the world. And so like the Italian label of free improvisation was pretty much sending their records to the the British label, who was sending their records to the Amsterdam label. And everybody from these labels was listening to each other's records and they were taking cues. And it was this whole subterranean scene of free improvisation that that developed uh, through everybody hearing each other's documents. So as a record fiend, as a record collector, finding out about that, like a good decade or so after it started, it, it, it was instigated. That was amazing, man. I mean, that was just like, okay, I need, I need. And then you found out like, you know, like free music productions, FMP, like the record label in Berlin that really spearheaded a lot of that. And Peter Bratzman did a lot of the cover art and he was involved with a lot of the recordings. I mean, there was already like two, 300 albums that existed on this label. <laughs> right. So I mean, they were just putting their money where their mouth was. It was like it was a gift exchange, you know. They weren't. Yeah. I doubt very seriously they were making their their money back on these records, but they were doing what they loved, and you know, they and they they were okay with the inherent poverty that existed doing that. Yeah. You know, somebody asked me the other day, like, you know, I read your book and I was really surprised, like how poor you all were until you actually signed to Geffen Records. And I was like, yeah, nobody had any money. I mean, it's just like right. money. In fact, if you had money, it was kind of embarrassing. You know, that would <laughs> right. certainly, I mean, that would certainly change a lot, you know, with the advent of success with a band like Nirvana and onwards. Making money became, a, you know, a different sort of, a, a different sort of aesthetic and it became actually kind of cool, especially when it related to like, Hip hop, which is like you know this music that was like historically marginalized, it was all about like making money wearing gold, and it's just sort of like this is our success in this in this in the terms of 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 this this economy that has always sort of short shifted us historically. And so, but then you have something like the Beastie Boys, who kind of like also sort of like become incredible successes by sort of uh, taking that aspect or that genre of music and, and, and putting it into their own world and it's kind of it's kind of amazing and fascinating and, and interesting to sort of see where where, where money almost becomes kind of humorous in a way it becomes kind of um openly desirable whereas before i think it was kind of like a hidden desire for so many people because <laughs> right. it just it just was not cool you know yeah. and then i mean and it kind of comes out of the whole certainly the whole allen ginsburg jack kerouac holy poverty kind of you know right. uh, thing so the conflict of riches is always going to be a problem in sort of i think the world of just creative lifestyle you know it's yeah. just this yeah. is the way it is um, one one little kind of side thing, which isn't directly related to the book, but I'm curious: Did you um, have you ever read through Nick Soulsby's book about all your collaborations? Yeah. And I thought it was great. I wondered if what your perspective was on on that book, and if it. Well, I I had first heard about it when it was it was online a bit, and somebody mm -hmm. started mentioning it on Facebook or something, and then I went and found what was going on, and I saw it. I was like, oh, there's this there's this guy in England who's Put, putting together a, a discography of all the work outside of Sonic Youth, mm -hmm. um, and so I was, I was, you know, um, curious if not flattered by it. I, I think I reached out to him, and then he kind of said, "If it's okay with you, I'd like to talk to a publisher about doing 
an actual book of this. And I said, well, good luck. I mean, it's like, you know, <laughs> I mean, that, you know, it's pretty kind of like, it, it's a litany of like really obscure music. Right. And, and, but he, yeah, he put it together in, in a really kind of, um, uh, kind of, kind of welcoming way. And, and, um, it was a little disconcerting. I think a lot of people thought it, I had more to do with it than I did. I gave oh, him yeah. my blessings. And mm-hmm. the fact that it was like this, this was my, my book coming out. And it was just like focused on my dealings with a s- small labels that through the years and putting out these different recordings. And mm-hmm. what I liked about it, what I had always liked about that practice was that it was always this idea of engaging with sort of the, this, idea of community that I right. that I that appealed to me. Mm-hmm. Early on with independent labels like SST Records, which we would get involved with, I was really into the fact that they were putting out compilation albums of different bands that were primarily from their community. So it'd be all a bunch of bands from Long Beach, California, like that would include Saccharine Trust and the Minutemen and and then, you know, sometimes they would create ad hoc bands with different names. <laughs> Yeah. And and uh, so, but I really like that idea. I like that idea of like, of these kind of micro community, micro scenes that were existing uh, in the pantheon of, of 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 punk rock, and and so these compilation compilation albums to me were like were fascinating because they were, you know, it was sort of like a clubhouse of of music. You know, these different bands that kind of all hung out together. So I always kind of wanted to be on those records. And as soon as Sonic Youth could be on any compilation, I was really gung-ho. I was like, yes, you know, we're on. when Bruce Pavitt asked us to be on the first Sub Pop compilation, Sub Pop 100, mm-hmm. the first LP compilation, I was just like really, really um, uh, happy that we were going to be on this record with these other mm-hmm. bands from the Pacific Northwest scene. Not only Pacific Northwest, but the bands like the Wipers or... I think the Sub Pop 100 has something to do more with like bands representing different regions from around the USA. Because Bruce Pavitt, before he did Sub Pop, I think his idea was for Sub Pop to sort of focus on all of these kind of young, up and coming, yet disparate scenes around the country. Right. Totally. And because I, I remember him visiting us in New York City and talking about how he wanted to travel across the country and sort of put out these compilations of these scenes. Mm-hmm. But what he does is he goes back to Seattle and realizes that Seattle has, is so, it's become so rich with like new bands that it's going to take all his energy just to sort of, to just cover that. And plus he's home, you know, it's like, well, I think, there, I think, I think, it's, I think it was more reasonable for him, but he also mm-hmm. kind of like, he, he truly was really enamored and loved what he was hearing from all these new bands. For sure. And um, so, you know, that, that was interesting. But he was, his, his, his initial intrigue was like these interconnections between these scenes coming up in the early 80s into the mid 80s. And uh, I'm still interested in that. I mean, to me, it's just like, I'm really interested in what's happening in Miami, Florida, you know, just because of the time I spent there. And Evan and I have a record label here called Ecstatic Peace, or Daydream Library Series. We have a book in print called Ecstatic Peace Library. But the Daydream Library Series, yeah, I mean, since living in London those last 10 plus years, we've released music here by by some London artists like Big Joni, 
But mm-hmm. to spending time, to spending some time in Miami, we discovered like this really amazing Caribbean sort of shoegaze band, you know, the, called a uh, Seafoam Walls, and we right. put their album out, and everybody uh, down in the Miami scene was like, you know, we're so so thankful that we put this local band out because like nobody else was doing it. But, you know, so we just sort of did it because we really liked their music. We weren't expecting to sell uh, too many copies of it, but you know, mm-hmm. it, it it does okay. And then there's another band these these uh, these women from um, who from Miami who have a record store called Sweat Records, or they're they're associated with the Sweat Records. Nice. And they have a band called Las Nubes N U B E S, and they sing in both Spanish and English and, and Miami Spanglish, and. Um, yeah, they're total like punk grunge, like you know, uh, girl band. And they're kind of great, and we're putting and we're putting their record out. So we've been putting records out like that. So to me, it's just like finding this energy that exists primarily in a I mean, that, that exists in a region that's primarily defined by life in this, this in these areas. I love that. I I I used to get so into being in one country and then like f- finding all these records by bands that just sort of exist in that country and nowhere else and they just sing in their own language and mm-hmm. and then i then i would go to the next country and <laughs> do it all over again <laughs> it's really I, it really got out of hand for a while i mean i think you know i had to get rid of a lot of i got rid of a lot of my my, my records through the years um this is i just don't have the real estate for it you know right it's hard um, <laughs> Oh, it is. It is. And it's like you think about it. It's like who else looks at this stuff? No one. It's, right. it's like yeah. You know, it's like you, you're, it's like stamp collecting. You know, like it's hid, like these stamp albums hidden underneath your bed. Right. It's like you know you have this like really rarefied Sun Ra record. It's like right. Right. Who's who? Who actually <laughs> sees it or like touches right. it or plays it? No right, one, you. Right. You're it's like it's yeah. like it's in your slot. Yeah, I, I look I look at my stuff sometimes and I think, man, I would be so psyched if I knew somebody who had all this. I'm like, well, I'm the only person who's, who's psyched about yeah. all this. It's a weird thing. I was yeah. actually asked to write a book about record collecting, and I think I'm going to get back into it. A uh, long time oh, ago, nice. I got, I got mm-hmm. asked that I had the, I had a title for it. I was going to call it Mint Condition, and uh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> and so I uh, just to give you, a, I got that far. But you know, I, it's sort of like how do you how do you write about that kind of obsession in a way? And right. um, you know, if it is indeed, I mean, it is an obsession, I suppose. But mm-hmm. for me, it's, it says more than just being than an obsession. It says something else about you know this idea of 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 maintaining a a living archive. You know, and it's right. just like it's. I think it's really at this point in time when everything's being going into the digital realms the whole existence of like the vibratory archive as i think about it that you can actually touch or smell or see it's already has disappeared quite a bit and it is still disappearing and much of a lot of like the tangible world disappears and so you know i I, you know none of us are getting any younger so i'm just like you know, what do you do? I think John Peel passed away and he had this amazing archive of records. Yeah. The, the, the famous DJ from, from uh, mm-hmm. the BBC. And yeah. I actually saw his collection, I, you know, and I was just, it was, oh, wow. it was amazing, but his, his family really had no idea what to, what to do with it. And they tried to get institutions involved. But even the institutions oh. are like, we, are we, what do you do with this stuff? 
Yeah. It's tough yeah. because it is tough, yeah. you know. It is. Yeah. Ultimately, and, it know, is. <laughs> then a lot of these recordings get with technology, they get really successfully refined sometimes, you know. So if you want to find like a first pressing of, of an original copy of like Led Zeppelin's first record, go for it. Drop the 3000 bucks to buy it. But it's not going to sound as good as like, you know, the, the most contemporary kind of like remastered you know, file of it. And this is all there is to it. So what do you, why do you want that, you know, if inferior yet more original copy? There's a lot of questions. A lot of questions you have to, a lot of questions <laughs> to be, be asked. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> well, awesome. Well, thanks so much for talking about all this. I really just enjoyed the book so much, and it was. Well, great when the record collecting book comes out, we'll have to do. Uh, we'll have to do another oh. session. Oh yeah, that'd be your, awesome. I, I see your records behind you. Behind me are my yeah. books, but yeah, <laughs> right. we can sort of. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> that would be amazing. So, and good luck with everything. I, I, I Thanks, hope Mark. everything goes well with yeah. with your health and all that stuff, and you're still able to do your tour eventually and everything. I, I appreciate it. Yeah. Check it out if you do. So cool, awesome. Thanks, Mark. The Music Book Podcast is produced, edited, and hosted by Mark Masters. Our theme music is by the great band Savak. Our logo was designed by Walter Carlton. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a rating and a review wherever you hear it. And thanks so much for listening.